Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupold. Thank you for joining me on the show today. So, for this episode and the next several episodes, I'm going to share with you a recording of a class I gave and am currently still giving at Hilton Baptist Church, where I serve as an elder and as a teacher occasionally. So the class I'm teaching is called God and Government, and this episode is week one of that class, which is going to be approximately six or seven episodes long. So without further ado, week one of God and Government. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome. I'm, sh- I'm sure more, well, hopefully more folks will be uh, trickling in. If it gets loud back there, you can close the door but I don't want it to get too hot, so we can leave it open for now. That's fine. Um, I appreciate you all coming today. Full class. That uh, means a lot to me. Hopefully, I don't let you all down, so I'll do the best I can. Uh, we had some technology issues, but we worked through that, so step one, get the, get the screen working. Uh, if you can't see it, I can try to reposition it. I know there's that, that beam in the way there, but uh, just if you can't see it, please raise your hand. I can try to reposition it. Uh, before we start, of course, it's important to open up in a word of prayer, so uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day that you've given us. We uh, praise you, Lord, that we can gather here safely and freely to, uh, to learn about you, to serve you, and to grow together in faith. We pray that you would guide our discussion this morning, and may it be glorifying to you, We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay. So, welcome to God and Government, week one. And this week will be an introduction to what I like to call sphere sovereignty. And that term uh, is kind of championed, or scholars would say it's primarily been championed by a man named Abraham Kuyper. And I have a quote of his on the screen up here. He was Prime Minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. He was also a pastor and an author. Uh, And one of his most famous quotes is, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. So that's typically called the every square inch um, quote from Abraham Kuyper. So the purpose of this class is to look at what does the Bible say about government, and we're not just going to talk about, when we hear the word government, the civil government. There are multiple governments that God has ordained in this world. Uh, We will spend later on in the class and in future weeks more focus on civil government, but we're going to look at all of the governments. We're going to look at what is our role and responsibility as Christians in all of these governments. And then, of course, how do we apply scripture to all of life? Every area of life is affected by the word of God. Now, my method in trying to tackle such a big goal in seven weeks is really a systematic approach. I know a lot of times we're used to just picking one book of the Bible and and reading through it very carefully, very very closely, and that's primarily the best way to do things. But in a lot of ways, we have to be systematic. So, like for example, Greg's class next door is marriage, 
and family, marriage and parenting. And that you're going to look at all throughout Scripture, pieces here and pieces there, to try to get put this big puzzle together and get this big picture view of what does God say about marriage and parenting. And the same thing will be true about what does God say about government. And so that's why we're going to cover a lot of different passages. And I handed out cards to each of you or many of you. So at some point throughout today, I'll call on you to, to read that passage. Uh, that'll help uh, kind of speed things along, but also keep everyone engaged. And of course, we want to keep Scripture as the foundation. We want to be certainly careful that we're not ripping passages out of context uh, as we go over them fairly quickly. So we have to be uh, uh, grounded really well in the Word of God. And then, of course, we're going to look at, maybe not so much today, but in future weeks, uh, historical and contemporary applications of uh, God's Word. So some basic definitions, always important to uh, set the foundation there. So one of the definitions is uh, of government. Uh, you can look that up. Most of these are from uh, this, uh, Webster's Dictionary. Government is the action or manner of controlling or regulating. Okay, pretty broad definition. You have a citizen is a legally recognized subject of a political entity. Civics, derived from the Latin, study of rights and responsibilities of citizens. Civis is a citizen in the Latin, and civitas is a city-state. And then the final definition, politics. Poly means many, ticks, bloodsuckers. All right? Just kidding. It refers to the affairs of the, pol of the polis, the city. It's Greek. Polites, citizen, and polis is city. So if you read in scripture about various polises, uh, the decapolis or any other polis, that just is Greek for a city there. So we're going to begin by the basic truth that God is in charge of everything. So this... The foundation of this class is that we all agree that God is sovereign over everything that happens in all of the universe. Um, so that's kind of our, our baseline. And if you don't agree with that, we'll talk after class. That's fine. Too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a separate class. Okay, separate class. So what we want to talk about are the basic four human domains that are described in Scripture, or the four spheres. We're talk, talking about sphere sovereignty. So the first is the self or individual government. You govern yourself. You regulate and you control your own actions and your own body. Self-control, fruit of the spirit, right? Which is, the self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit. Then you have the family domain, which in scripture we'll see is primarily the area of health, welfare, and education, where the providing of physical needs, takes place of financial needs and education of children in the family sphere. The church, we'll see, is the ministry of reconciliation, administering grace, bringing peace, proclaiming the word of God, administering the ordinances of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church discipline as necessary. And then we'll also see that the state government is the ministry of justice. So we'll begin. Again, we have all of God's domain, everything, and within God's domain, 
there are certain areas that are, that are given to each of us as individuals. Self-government. What are we supposed to do uh, with ourselves as individual people? So we got six passages I want to have folks read and uh, apply here. Uh, these are not the only passages in Scripture, by the way. I have basically six for every uh, domain. So whoever had Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, would you be so kind as to read that for the class? Okay, so right there we see God has given responsibility to Adam. This is before Eve is formed, and he has a job to do. Well, first of all, he has to not sin. He has to not eat of the forbidden fruit, but he has a job to, uh, he's got a land to work and a law to obey. He has to uh, tend the garden and keep it, and cultivate it, and not disobey the Lord. His duty is to govern him, himself. And his job was to take dominion of the land, and he had both rights and responsibilities in that. He had the right to the garden, because God had given it to him, but he had responsibility to not mess it all up. Sadly, he does. But, and he's under the authority of God. Uh, so what happens, of course, we all know the story. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and mankind is now dead and enslaved to sin and unable, in many ways, to govern himself the way that he should. We mentioned earlier that self-control is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and so we have now the issue of humans being unable to control themselves because they are slaves to sin. Would someone please read the Proverbs 25:28 passage? Like a city Okay, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. So, so exposed, chaotic, vulnerable, uh, definitely not a good or safe or secure position. Someone who lacks self-control. And that leads us to discuss Galatians 5, 16-26. Would someone be so kind as to read that passage? Paul speaking. So I say, live by the For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful, sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Thank you. Thank you. So we see a long list of, uh, of behaviors that are evidence of a lack of self-control. And Paul is calling uh, Christians to, in, to have self-control and to live by the fruit of the Spirit. And ultimately, that self-control is going to be Spirit-driven or Spirit-empowered. Um, now, unbelievers can have limited self-control. We know this. Uh, people who are not Christian, they don't, they don't act as wicked as they could act. Um, you, might, you might see uh, unbelievers that are in, in great shape or they're very disciplined in certain areas of their lives, um, but it's by their own strength and their own power. It's by man's strength and man's power that they, that they can pedal harder, pedal faster, and uh, gain control in a certain area of life, um, but it's not by the power of the Holy Spirit. So believers have the Holy Spirit, and we are to exercise self-government in every area of life by God's power and his strength, because Jesus is Lord over us. God is sovereign over the domain of individual self-government. So what is the domain of self-government? Well, one of, one of them is to uh, be sanctified. So would someone read 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, 3 through 8. Loudly, please, to overcome the fan. Actually, I might turn this off if anybody has any problems with it. If it gets too hot, we can turn it back on. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 4, please. Yeah. So, a clear self-control. God wants us, commands us to engage in self-control. Uh, the next passage, Second Thessalonians three six through thirteen, please. So, doing good, eating, drinking, working, resting, exercising, learning, loving God and loving our neighbor, all of that is the domain of the individual government. We're to um, 
take dominion within that God-given sphere of ourselves. We need to uh, get control of ourselves, and we can't really uh, expect to be given more unless we can be uh, faithful with what God has given us now. He who is faithful with little will be given much, right? So that's the whole idea. You start in your domain that God has given you as an individual person, and then that will expand from there. Um, obviously, as we get to the family government, looking at marriage and, and having um, authority in the, in the family and over children. The last passage to cover, would someone read Titus 2, 11 through 14, please? Thank you. Yeah, again, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. So in sin, and the Apostle John will say in, in, in 1 John, sin is lawlessness. Uh, when we were in sin, we were lawless people. But now that we are set free from sin and redeemed in Christ, we are set free from lawlessness, and now we obey the Lord because we love him and we're zealous for good works, not because they save us, but because we have been saved. And that's why we want to do uh, good works. So those are just six passages that talk about what self-government is uh, and, and how we as Christians are to um, take dominion in that realm of, of self-government. So before we move on to the next sphere, are there any questions? I know there's a lot of passages there. Any questions, comments, thoughts there? Before we move on, we can always, if you have one that comes up later, just raise your hand and we can always go back to that. So that covered the, the sphere of self-government. And now we're going to look at the sphere of family government. Again, six passages. Would someone be so kind? Read Genesis 2, 18 through 25. I know somebody. Thank you. So we see there the creation of family government. God first made Adam. You have to do these things, control yourself, obey. And now here's Eve, form the first family. God presents the bride uh, of Eve to Adam. 
and they are now living in harmony, and their job is to work together to accomplish the mission that God has given mankind. But obviously we know that's not the whole story. Uh, at, after that, of course, one chapter later, we see the fall of man and how sin affects even family government. You have now a conflict between uh, the husband and the wife. Uh, we can spend more time talking about that in the class over there about marriage and, and parenting. But essentially, we see this battle of authority between husband and wife. Uh, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, and that, that concept of, uh, of kind of taking uh, unlawful authority upon each other it gets paralleled on to Genesis 4 with uh, Cain and Abel, where God tells Cain sin is crouching at the door and it wants to, it wants to have you, wants to take dominion over you, but you must master it. So we have this battle for authority and dominance that takes place because of sin within the realm of the family government. And so family government, just like individuals have to be redeemed in order to govern themselves, the family needs to be redeemed in order for it to be governed properly. Would someone please read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33? Thank you. And someone read the parallel passage in First Peter three one through seven, please. Thank you. So in C, in both of those passages, one from Paul, one from Peter, we see that the family government is being redeemed by the Word of God 
power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ, and that husbands are to lead lovingly, be the head of their wives, but that includes having responsibility and leadership to lead sacrificially. And you have wives submitting to their husbands, but not trying to compete or fight over authority there. And respect, mutual respect is to be given, but also the hierarchy is reestablished, the proper hierarchy that God has designed. And so we see Paul references all the way back to Genesis uh, in applying what now, as Christians, we're supposed to live within the realm of family government. And it's a picture of Christ and the church. So uh, marriage is a picture of that. Um, and you have the ultimate fulfillment of, of Jesus Christ as Lord and the husband over the church as his bride. Um, but that then extends on to the realm of children. So would someone read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, please? So again, we see uh, very succinctly Paul lays out the responsibilities of both now uh, with fathers having a tendency because of sin to be harsh with their children and they're commanded not to be harsh while they're tempted to do so. And children tempted by sin not to obey and they're commanded to obey and ultimately parents are to train up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, all in submission. The family government is in submission now to Christ. So we'll look at, we've already looked at a little bit about what the domain of family government is, the nurturing and training of children. Uh, and there's a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 6. Would someone please read that? So, with your children, wherever you are, walking, sitting down, lying down, rising up, all throughout your lives, we're, treat, we're training our children to uh, love the Lord and to learn about the Lord and obey Him. And so, we have that as the key piece, education and the training up of children given to the domain of family. 1 Timothy 5, 3-16 speaks about another one. Would someone please read that passage? Thank you. 
So a lot there, thank you. That touches on a couple areas, and next week we're going to talk more about how the spheres overlap with each other and how they also um, infringe upon each other because of sin. But we do see there that Paul is laying a groundwork for, okay, this is the realm of the family. You need to take care of your household and your family members, and if those who don't do that are worse than unbelievers if they neglect taking care of their own, their own household. So there's um, a, a domain given to the family to take care of immediate family members and those who are uh, related. And then the church does have a role to play in taking care of the widows, but you saw the long list there of those who are truly widows are to be enrolled in the list of widows to receive help and, and support from the church, whereas um, those who don't qualify essentially those under, under the age of 60 and are, are still capable of doing other things, like getting married, um, should still do that. So there's a fine line being drawn there between what the church should be taking on upon itself and what the family should be doing if they're functioning properly. So again, we see the domain of the family government provision of health and welfare, well-being, financial support, uh, food, clothing, and the nurturing and the training of children being given to the sphere of the family. Before we move on to the next sphere, any questions, thoughts, comments there on those passages or others in general? If not, we'll move on to the third sphere, that of the church government, which we briefly mentioned already in that passage from 1 Timothy. And we're going to look at now what is the church and what is its purpose. Well, the church is the called out ones, built upon the confession of faith in Christ, and given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Would someone please read the passage Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea um, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They say some say he is the 
John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, Bone Jonah, or Simon, called uh, Jonah. For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thank you. So we see the keys he's talking about. The, bind, the power to bind in the loose on earth and in heaven, spiritual authority is going to be given. And we do see that actually given in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Would someone please read that passage? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his sin between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained his brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, punch him in the face. <laughs> is, that the, uh, is that the message version? That's the message, right? <laughs> well done. Well done. I like it. I like this guy right here. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. I like that textual variant that you threw in there. <laughs> Punch him in the face. <laughs> so we have the power of binding and loosing, and in that particular context is church discipline. Uh, someone falling, falling away into sin, how do we address that as a church, how do we exercise the spiritual authority that the church has been given over its members? Um, and then the church also has a specific mission that has been given in the Great Commission, very famous passage. Who would be so kind as to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20? So all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And because of that, we can go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. So that is essentially the mission of the church. And, of course, the scripture speaks more about how that's going to happen in more detail in other passages. But that is the mission statement there for, uh, for God's people. Now, the church is the redemptive community, they're the redeemed people of God, to be a people devoted to him. Uh, throughout the Gospels, we've seen that we're to be salt and light. We see that in uh, Matthew 5, to be ministers of the Gospel, uh, to be an example to, to others, a city on a hill, if you will, the church is. Um, but of course, the church contains a whole bunch of sinners, sinners that are saved by grace and being sanctified. And so that's why we also see 
in passages like 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 1 that they are organized with elders and deacons to exercise authority uh, over the church, that spiritual authority. Uh, they're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, uh, but members of a kingdom that exists here on earth, and in a couple weeks we will spend an entire class looking at the kingdom of heaven and how it applies to this topic of government. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be ambassadors to represent Christ the King to others, and we're to speak to those who do not know King Jesus. And other passages uh, describe the church as conquering soldiers in the Lord's army, uh, more than conquerors, as Paul says in Romans, uh, waging spiritual warfare, the armor of God analogy should come to mind in Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, one passage that I was wanted to look at is 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Would someone please read that passage? <laughs> Thank you. So, it's waging spiritual warfare, but not the typical way that warfare is done with bombs and weapons and missiles and stuff like that, but arguments, discussion, uh, sharing the gospel, um, apologetics, uh, debate, and we're, we're taking arguments, we're taking every thought captive to Christ, bringing it into submission to Lord Jesus. And then, 2 Corinthians 5, 16-21 really is a good description of the domain of the church. Would someone please read that? In that law, therefore, we regard no one according to his flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to his flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, things have become. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the ministry of reconciliation is the sphere, the domain of the church to, to bring peace, to proclaim peace, and to bring reconciliation um, in this fallen world, to administer the word of God, baptism, Lord's Supper, to teach and to disciple, um, to teach everyone how to submit to Christ in every area of life, whether they are parents, teachers, students, young children, um, older individuals, uh, and whatever job they have to to serve the Lord. And one of the ways in which that happens is what we see in Ephesians 4, 4 through 16. Someone please read that passage.
Thank you. So the purpose to equip and support the saints, uh, God gave the, the gifts of the Spirit and the various roles, teachers, elders, pastors, to equip the saints to go do that work, to grow the church, to become mature um, as, as a church, and to, to grow that body and to be filled um, the fullness uh, in love, really. So um, now, so that is just a, a, a quick rundown of the domain, the mission, and the, the purpose and the method of what the church is supposed to do. Yeah, there's some direct support for the widows, the orphans, the fatherless, um, the poor. Uh, that's primarily the domain of the family, but the church does have a part to play in that. Um, and the church is to, to perform and teach people to engage in ministry in every area of life. Like I said, marriage and parenting, class next door, business and economics, education and learning, and law and government. The Bible uh, and the church has a part to play in, in teaching um, people how to, how to do those things, how to uh, obey Christ in those things. So, again, I'll pause for questions, thoughts, before we move on to the final sphere um, of government. Not that I'm aware of. He he's speaking more of um, different ways you can you can good question by the way. Different ways you can like organize the idea. So this is this is divided in um, who has authority and who has responsibility essentially. But you could you could re um, redesign this and make the circles work, um, entertainment, um, you know, family. You, you could divide it in, in maybe like jobs. You could divide it in what, what things that you do, and then you would look at which authority has authority in that, in that domain, right? So there's different ways you could break it up. This is organized in terms of um, roles and responsibilities of each sphere and how they relate to, to each other. So work, obviously, is primarily a self-government thing. He who does not work shall not eat, as, as Paul says. But of course, as a family, uh, as parents, we're teaching our children to have hard, a good work ethic and what it means to work hard and, and not be lazy, what it means to work with integrity. And the church has a part to play in that too, because while we want people to work ethically, not cut corners, uh, and, you know, not, uh, not uh, you know, cut wages or, or withhold wages in an unlawful manner or anything like that. Um, and then, of course, the civil government has a part to play if someone is stealing and, and breaking the law um, in, in their work. Um, the government has to potentially punish that person and, and get things back in line. So, so in that domain, all of them have a part to play in work. And that's why, uh, and again, we'll spend more on this next week, but 
the, there's an overlap. In some areas, they all overlap. And in some areas, they belong just self and, and family government um, there. Does that kind of answer your, your question there? Yeah. Yeah, there's different ways you can approach it, but I think you still end up getting at the same end goal when you look at all the passages of Scripture and you try to put the puzzle together and see the big picture. What is God trying to say in, uh, in all of his words? No, thank you. Those are both uh, great comments and questions there. So, yeah, uh, let's go back to the civil government there. All right, six passages. We have just enough time. Probably get through them. It'll be good. Um, all right, so let's begin, like we should always begin in Genesis, the beginning. Uh, would someone please read Genesis 9, 1 through 7? Thank you. So we see here the first time that God has given a command to Noah to essentially the, the death penalty against those who commit murder because we're made in the image of God. Whoever takes the life of man, by man shall his life be taken back upon him. Uh, so now we have God essentially giving the sword, the authority of wielding the sword to humanity. Now before that, and it's interesting when you, when you look at what happened before the Noahic covenant and, uh, and uh, this, this giving of the authority to take life, um, you have Cain who commits the first murder in Genesis, uh, but no one is allowed to kill Cain per Genesis 4. And it's interesting, some, when you look at different commentators, they provide various thoughts on, so why is it the case that, that God does not allow Cain to be put to death in Genesis 4, but then five chapters later, when the Noahic covenant is inaugurated, uh, God allows now capital, and commands actually, capital punishment for those who commit murder. Some commentators say that the population is still too low for capital punishment to take place. And also they would say that since everything began with the family, it's still just families essentially at this point in time. And that as families multiply and you get clans and then tribes and then nations, now you have a, a, a separate domain. Essentially, God is making it clear that sword bearing or taking someone's life is not the domain of the family. The family does not have the authority to put people to death. Um, the state does, the state government, go, but, but, but fathers may not 
um, kill their children or, or anything like that. And God was being patient and merciful. And it's interesting, in Genesis 4, there's, there's a kind of a, a, a random section here. It's not, not up here. I'll read it here. But right after uh, uh, Cain is being given his mark and sent away, it talks about a man named Lamech. And in Genesis 4, 23 through 24, it says this, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So we have there, uh, Lamech is taking unlawful authority. He's killing people simply for insulting him and, and striking him. And he's saying that he's going to execute greater vengeance than what God has said regarding if someone were to kill Cain, it would be seven times upon him. Lamech says, well, if anyone affects me, it's going to be 77 times upon him. So uh, Lamech wants to give more revenge than what God uh, even says he would do. So the point of all this, though, regardless of the, of the reasoning, we do see that now finally in, in the Noahic covenant, um, the sword is given for uh, capital punishment in the case of murder. Uh, in order to protect those who bear the image of God. Now, the next passage is uh, kind of a twofold passage. Essentially, we see that just like uh, individuals need to be redeemed, saved from their sins, the family needs to be redeemed and reordered properly under Christ. The church is the community of the redeemed and is ordered by Christ to do certain things. The civil government needs to be redeemed and ordered under the authority of Christ to do certain things. Would someone read the, the double passage of Isaiah 9 and Psalm 2, please? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, and then Psalm 2. Yeah, you got a double whammy there. You got to be quick. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth plot, uh, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. And the Lord against his anointed saying, let us break their bones in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Kings sit in the heavens shall rise. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and dis distress their wisdom and displeasure. Yet, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will be clear to be free. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them Thank you. So we see the concept of government or dominion being given to the Messiah's 
shoulders. There'll be no end to the increase of his authority. And then in Psalm 2, uh, the only psalm that, that mentions, uh, that explicitly mentions the son, this kind of messianic figure, uh, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, telling all the Gentile, the pagan rulers, hey, um, because he is my son, today I've begotten you, because that authority is there, rulers, uh, stop raging against the Lord's anointed and kiss the son and submit uh, there, uh, lest his wrath be upon you. And then we see uh, several proverbs that talk about uh, the, the purpose and responsibility of, of rulers. Would someone please read those two proverbs, 16 and 25? So we have this kind of uh, just a, almost a duplicate passage regarding how the throne is established by righteousness, usually through the removal of the wicked from the king's presence, or that the king himself ought not to be wicked if he wishes to have his throne to be established. Um, now, we have several other passages that talk about the domain of civil government, and so we're just going to kind of read them back to back. Would someone please read Romans 13, 1 through 7? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The rulers are not your servants, which you not know, but from God. Do you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. Thank you. And First Peter two, please. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or authority, or the governor, who are sent by him to support authority, to do wrong, to do right. Okay. So we have in both passages, Paul and Peter are highlighting two important things. The government is to Punish evil, both of them mention that. Punish evil and praise the good. And of course, we'll get more into this in future uh, um, lessons about God defining what is good and what is evil. What's interesting is in Romans 13, particularly, if you look at some of the Greek language that's used there, uh, we see uh, phrases such as, uh, he, is the, he is God's servant for your good. And it's the same word, diakonos, that we get the word deacon from. So he is God's deacon for your good. And he's also the minister of God. And that Greek word is where we get liturgy from, liturgos. Liturgy uh, there is applied to uh, minister. So there's definitely some uh, spiritual religious aspects there. 
and the purpose is to administer vengeance upon evil. It even says that he is uh, uh, a God's uh, avenger uh, who carries out God's wrath <coughs> on the wrongdoer. And just as a, a, a little side story, when I was at, uh, serving at Creech Air Force Base uh, uh, in Las Vegas many years ago, I was part of the 22nd Reconnaissance Squadron, and on our patch, our flight suit, uh, the motto of the patch was dealing vengeance. That was the actual motto. So this is very interesting that without even thinking about it, the, the military is applying the Romans 13 to, to even 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 on our patches we're saying we're dealing vengeance and that's what we're that's what we're called to do whether we even think about it on purpose or or not um, but there's there's a definition there of what that means of good and evil and God is the one that defines that uh, so would someone please read the, the two proverbs 28 and 2026 20, please Okay, so we have concept there from Proverbs. The wise king uh, uh, filters out or, or threshes the wicked from amongst the people, winnows the evil with his eyes. His purpose there, to be a wise king, to be a good king, is to punish evil, not to punish good, but to punish evil and to praise good. But ultimately the point is, is that civil government has been given the realm of justice and judgment. They are the ones that bear the sword uh, so while the church bears the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and prayer, the civil government bears the actual sword of punishment and taking of life, and the family does not get to um, take life. Only the government gets to do that. So the common themes in all of this is that all domains are in subjection to Christ. As we read in the Great Commission, Jesus says that all authority on heaven and on earth, so any authority that's on earth, if you, if you want to think of any authority that does exist right now, it's already under the authority of Christ. It's been, it's been given to him. Uh, that belongs to King Jesus. And so within God's domain, there are certain things that he has given to us as individuals, to families, to the church, and to the civil government. And there is overlap. And next week, that is going to be our focus, is looking at what the overlap is and how sin has affected that, where, where when, when certain spheres collapse or fail, what happens then? Do the, uh, how do the other spheres take over the duties of one sphere that fails? Um, and how does one sphere maybe encroach upon the duties of others and get things out of balance uh, there. So we're, basically, we're going to look at the effect of sin within this, this sphere um, that God has given. So that is all I have right now. I Some time before we, we break for church for questions, comments, and, and points of discussion so far. Anyone have anything this time? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of ignorant talk of foolish men. That's true. And, and our job is to is to obey the word, so that we can silence silence that. Not join in with them doing the foolish talk. We have to be self-controlled essentially in how we talk 
uh, as the body of Christ in the world. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah, in the back. That's right. That's good. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those the commentators were trying to figure out, well, what is it? And I think I think you're right about that. Um I think that there's a sense in which if I had to just put the, the best reason out there for it, it's tied to the image of God. Where before the flood, there was all kinds of wickedness on the earth. Horrible things were happening. And uh, the image of God was being destroyed um, everywhere. And now God is actually seeking to restrain, restrain the evil of humans by instituting capital punishment. So there is a sense in which the government, by threatening people who commit murder, rape, and things like that with, with, with capital punishment, it restrains them from doing as much evil as they ought to do. So that's kind of one of the key roles of the civil government is justice and restraining through, through physical coercion, whereas the church's job is to, is to preach the gospel so that people will obey on their own and do good on their own, and they won't need to have a sword over their heads to, to do the right thing, right? Um, law, law is for the lawless, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy. The law is not given for the righteous. They're already doing those things. As Christians, we don't have to be told not to murder people. You know, if we truly have the spirit within us, we're not going to do that. But the, the pagans need to. So that's the, no, thank you for bringing up this good point. And also to the point that uh, I would say that the Noahic Covenant hasn't ended either. We still have the covenant sign of the rainbow. Uh, God has still promised not to destroy the earth by flood, and that promise still remains even to this day. So even though Christ has come, he did not like get rid of the Noahic covenant. It's still there. And obviously we have Romans 13 as an explicit passage of uh, they bear the sword, not in vain. And it's not a, you know, it's not a letter opener. It's a legit sword for, for taking life. So, you know, good Thank you for that. Good, good question. Any other? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. You have a problem with Romans 13 in the American Revolution. I like how you throw the, that grenade right in at the end of class. You're good. You're good. I like it. I like it. Uh, 30-second version. Um, it gets complicated when there's multiple authorities, right? You have to submit to authority. Well, which one? So uh, we submit to the authority of Pennsylvania. But if you get a tax bill from Idaho, do you have to pay it? Of course not. You're not under their authority. So uh, in the American Revolution concept there, you have the British Parliament's job is to, is to um, make law. That's their job. Um, so they represent the, their districts in England, and they make laws 
and they can um, levy taxes. Only Parliament has the po power to levy taxes under the, uh, the English government system, right? But here's the problem is that the colonial governments had their own parliaments. Each colony had their own uh, government, if you would call it, general assembly or, or congress, if you will, state assemblies, or when they weren't states then, co colonial assemblies. So they had their um, mini parliaments, if you will, and they were akin, they were basically um, parallel with, with the British Parliament. But the British Parliament said, no, 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 no. We are going to control you. We don't recognize your colonial government, even though the king had granted that. So if you look at some of the early charters, like William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, he had been given Pennsylvania by the king, the king of England. And he was able to form a, a colonial government as he saw fit. And he formed the General Assembly of Pennsylvania and, and governors and, and all that kind of thing um, to levy taxes and to pass laws. But it's under the authority of the king, right? And the British Parliament says, well, we're going to tax you and we're not going to recognize your own king-ordained um, approved governments anymore. Now you're going to obey the British Parliament and you will have no representatives in British Parliament. You will have no elections. And none of your people will be over here in England representing, you know, Pennsylvania or representing whatever. But they have their own, you know, British Parliament. They represent, you know, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, parts of England. But there's no representation for, for America. So essentially the argument is the Parliament of England is actually breaking the rules. They're the ones disobeying the already established covenants between the king and the colonies and the rights of Englishmen, that they are to only be taxed by a legislative body that represents them. So Idaho can't say that they just ipso facto represent Pennsylvania. You have no, we have no people in their government. So that's why they viewed it as a completely unlawful tax. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Sorry. I all right. Any final questions that are not like that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right, all right. Let's pray, close in prayer, and uh, that'd be great. Lord, we thank you again for this time. It goes by so fast, Lord. Uh, it's uh, going a mile a minute, uh, 10,000 foot altitude over your word, but Lord, it's, your word is good. Your word is, is powerful. It, it touches on everything, Lord. And Help us to reflect on these passages, to think on these things, and to see how you designed the world to function. And we pray, Lord, that you be with us now as we go to worship uh, uh, King Jesus and honor and all glory being given to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that class. If you have any questions about that class or if you attended that class and had any questions that uh, you were not able to get answered, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those locations. And, of course, uh, next week we'll have week two of that class. And so I hope that you'll tune in again next time. So until then, take care and God bless.